Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. beginning to look a lot like Festivus here in Virginia. We've got a bunch of snow on the ground. We've got kids home from school. It's just, um, uh, you know, we're still two weeks away from the big break, but uh, it is beginning to feel like Advent is getting closer to the end. Lessons and carols and uh, everyone buying Christmas presents and all that. How are you guys doing in uh, H-Town? Good. I got all my Christmas shopping done and we have a son that has a birthday in December. Okay. But wait. So on Monday I was like, okay, if there are parents listening to this with children in the car, turn it down. So on Monday I was like, yo, you got to put Santa Claus together because, you know, Josh is a priest. So like Christmas Eve night is like, there's no way it's going to happen on Christmas Eve night. And he put the boxes in his car to take them to be recycled, and he did not take them. And our son opened the door and was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting a morph board, which is, like, all he wanted. So now we're spending more money because I don't want to tell him Santa's not real. (laughs) Parenting fail. Parenting fail. (laughs) So that's how it's – that's what I get for doing all of it early. So What's a morph board? It is probably a piece of you know what, but the it looks like a scooter, really cheaply made, but you can also turn it into a skateboard and then you can like it also has like other attachments so you can put like um like almost like y- small yoga balls will go on the bottom of it and you can bounce it. Uh, okay, I've seen cool. I've seen the com- I've seen the commercials. Yeah. They look amazing. He's like dying for one. So anyway, he's getting one courtesy of us and then Santa Claus is getting him more stuff. <laughs> what about what about the Heyman household? Uh, we are excited and, uh, a little anxious too, because I don't think we've actually done any Christmas shopping at all. My wife may have done a little bit and they're now less than two weeks left, but this is kind of par for the course. Uh, we got the tree up, which is good with the lights on and our two-year-old Marshall just freaked out and loved it so much. And it was very exciting. This, he may not remember, but this is the first Christmas he'll kind of care about in the moment. Uh, but then we were going to put the ornaments on, but my oldest son, who'd been up till like, you know, 2 a.m. the night before studying, probably he fell asleep. So that was like three days ago, and we don't have any ornaments on the tree yet. So we're, uh, you know, we're going to screech in to Christmas this year as usual, but uh, but looking forward to it. You know, always, always kind of a crazy, joyful, expectant, anxious time. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know we're not alone, not having done a single bit of Christmas shopping yet. Oh, praise God, um, Dave. Uh, but, I mean, have you checked your wife's Amazon accounts? Maybe you just don't know. Cause. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, I always const- I keep asking, and she's just like, can we just talk about this later? Can we just talk about this later? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Speaking of which, we just put up the Mockingbird gift guide this past week. And if you want to go full churchy fangirl jack wagon level you get rj rj you get the dolly so parton me. prayer candle so up my alley um rj i guess you we would probably give you the um nicholas cage uh prayer candle i think i love that absolutely 100 fan yes 
Um, well, the season of giving is upon us. Here's a nice segue for you. We here at the Mockingbird HQ have just spent the last week or so sending out all of our end-of-the-year uh, letters, our appeal letters, our update letters, telling you all the cool things that have happened this year and everything that we've – or a smidge of what we've got planned for next year. And uh, we need your help. This is uh, – you know, it takes uh, – money resources to make the mocking cast and all the other things we do and we're actually in a little bit of a hole right now from this past year from some uh, expenses we didn't foresee but um a lot of lot of wonderful supporters out there and we do appreciate everything people can give but if you haven't or if you've never signed up for monthly giving or uh you've got a big bonus check or something i don't know whatever it is uh think about Giving to Mockingbird. We could really use it, and I think we make great use of things. Basically, what we're saying is we need your help. So uh, please do give and give generously. Yeah. I have this running joke uh, about Ben Madison, who is a guy that comes to our conferences. He used to work for Aaron Zimmerman in Waco. Now he's a rector in New Jersey. Um, we have this joke that we're not allowed to be in the same diocese because we're too loud and we make too many jokes. Um with the that. exception that we're allowed to hang out at Mockingbird conferences because we let anybody into Mockingbird. <laughs> and uh, and I actually think that's the beauty of this organization. It's why, you know, I always say I would read this stuff and listen to the stuff even if I didn't have anything to do with working for Mockingbird because um, it's a place where everyone can come to find rest. And I believe so much in the work that we've been gifted to do. So give generously. Um, we could use your support. I would echo that. I, I was thinking about this today, that if you listen to this podcast, then you probably know that there is nothing on earth that is more needed uh, than the good news of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like nothing that we need more to get through like today and nothing that we need for eternity. Um, and I think there is no ministry uh, that is doing more to further that message, to get that message out there to people who need it. And then also equip ministers who are um, spreading that message in their churches, in their ministries, um, you know, all and really all across the nation and across the world. And so if that is something that you care about, something you need and you know that other people need as well, then I would encourage you to be generous towards Mockingbird because um, Dave and his staff are doing incredible uh, groundbreaking work. Um, and this is something that is, uh, again, so, so needed. If you do want to give, uh, and we do uh, hope you do, it's go to www.ember.com slash support. Uh, or you can find it just by going to www.ember.com. If you say that you gave as a result of the mocking cast, we'll give you the Low Anthropology bumper sticker. How's yes. that sound? Yeah. On the spot. Hot. Now, uh, from that into this. Why We All Take the Same Travel Photos by Laura Maloney in Wired Magazine. Someone sent this to me, and I kind of you know, glanced at it, thought it wasn't that interesting, and then I glanced at it one more time as I was preparing for the show, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, this is a uh, – Laura here is talking about the strange phenomenon that travel photos all look the same, and she refers to a guy named John Yuri who wrote a book called The Tourist Gaze. He says, what is sought for in a holiday is a set of photography images – which have already been seen in tour company brochures or on TV programs. It ends up with travelers demonstrating that they really have been there by showing their vision of the images that they had seen before they set off. He's t this actually gets into a much deeper conversation about the role that photography is currently playing in our world. 
Uh, here's Laura speaking. It's less about seeing the place than taking the same photo as everyone else. You see this at the Grand Canyon. She said, I knew it was silly to join the crowd of tourists clicking away at the Mona Lisa when I visited the Louvre a couple years ago. Geotagging has made it all too clear how unoriginal those photos are. But I did it anyway, elbowing through the sea of smartphones and selfie sticks for a tourist-free shot at the front. But the visit, the visit just didn't feel complete without it. But why? Because photographing something is a way of possessing it. At least that's what Susan Sontag argued in her 1977 classic on photography. She wrote, to collect photographs is to collect the world. It confirms your connection to places and objects once distant and remote, making the world slightly smaller and less alienating. Ironically, though, collecting the world might also mean losing it. Sontag also wrote, a way of certifying experience, taking uh, photographs is also a way of refusing it by limiting experience to uh, a search for the photogenic, by converting experience into an image, a souvenir. And then she goes on to quote, recent studies that support that idea. One suggested that taking a photo of something makes it harder to remember that thing. Another found museum goers were less likely to remember objects if they took photos. You guys big photo takers? Um... Yeah, like all the time. <laughs> I was like, this feels directed at me. This is weird. Um, yeah, I take photos all the time. Um, and I'm, I'm always on Instagram posting things. And when we're on vacation, I'm especially obnoxious. I, I, you know, a huge part of it is like the same thing everyone else is doing, that we're taking these photos of the same things to prove that we were there or that we had a great vacation. I will also say my mother's a photographer, a professional photographer, and has been one since she was like 23. Mm -hmm. And so my family vacations, like I was first wave of family vacations being ruined by photography. <laughs> like we'd be like out in the middle of New Mexico and my mom would be like, pull over the car, Owen, and like leap out and spend 45 minutes in front of a cactus. So um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is the perfect spot. Joshua Tree. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That sounds scarring. That sounds quite yes. scarring. I'm surprised you take any pictures at all. It's like, I will never take a picture. Yeah, RJ, yeah, I don't, RJ, I, I don't yeah. think of you as a photographer in the slightest. Me? Yeah. Are you? Unless yeah, we take family photos for sure. We've no, sort of not that. Of like, you take photos of cars and things, but I'm not getting selfies from you. No, I'm not big on selfies for whatever reason. Uh, I guess do I take pictures? I take pictures of cars every so often. But uh, when we go on vacation, we definitely do. But we've we've perfected the whole family panorama, you know, where uh, one of us will start with the camera and one of us will be on one side. And then as soon as we get past um, that person, they'll switch cameras out. So all four of us or five of us now can make it into a single shot, which is kind of fun. Um, but this article, as you were talking, Dave, it reminded me of um, Total Recall. You guys remember that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. with yes. whom Sarah got a selfie recently? Yes, Sarah was putting up last so week with yep, that. It's all, it's all coming together. But remember, he <laughs> goes in originally to the lab to get an implanted memory of a vacation he didn't actually take. Um, and it does feel like that can't be that far off. You know, you don't actually have to go there. You just have to have pictures saying you were there and a memory of having been there. But the other thing it reminded me of was that article I sent to you a few weeks back, Dave, from Thrillist mm, yeah. um, about called, um, you know, I discovered the best hamburger place in America and then I destroyed it, <laughs> which was a confessional from a food critic who spent like a year or more going to hundreds and hundreds of different hamburger joints all across the country and, and came up with a ranking of the top hundred and crowned this little place in Portland, Oregon as the best hamburger joint in America. And he just loved how authentic it was and the regulars who were there and the hamburger was amazing. And of course, as soon as he published that article, 
it completely ruined the restaurant and now it's shut down. And uh, because it just, you know, it went from being a place where people who loved that restaurant and were really community went and were regulars to suddenly just hundreds and thousands of people showing up to go there one time and to get the picture and to post on Instagram and to never show up ever again. Um, And it really caused me to think about uh, why I do things, like what my motivation is, whether it is love or a desire to self-justify. And, uh, and I, you know, my wife and I, she hates Rotten Tomatoes. You guys know Rotten Tomatoes, right? Yeah. You know, that, that yeah. critic aggregator website, which will tell you whether a movie has been well-reviewed or not, or a TV show. And I, you know, I love that because I don't want to quote unquote, waste my time watching a bad movie as if my time is so precious. Um, but she hates that because she's like, I don't want someone else to tell me how I'm supposed to feel about a movie before I see it. So part of it, again, is my desire not to waste my time because, again, I think my time is precious, rightly rightly or wrongly. That's a whole nother ego trip. Um, but, you know, wanting to go to the restaurant that Eater.com says is good or mm. – um, You're a maximizer. Again, or, yeah, exactly. Maximize your maximize your time, and then it just it, it becomes an exercise in self justification. Like I'm important, so I do important things, and I'm my time is valuable, so I spend it doing things that other people think that are are valuable, as opposed to something that I actually want to do or flows from a place of 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 love or curiosity um, about the world. So it's a little both end, but I did I, that's what I thought about when I read this this article and that other that thrillist article is pretty amazing pretty amazing too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's part of it, what she's really saying is that it's a, a mode of not only self-justification and search for validation, but you're actually trying to um, control the world. You're, you're trying to make it manageable, fit it into a frame. And some of that is beautiful. I think there's an artistic expression there, and that is what art is, us taking things that move us and trying to put them into a, a way that, we, that are bite-sized and make the world seem a little... Uh, smaller, but uh, there's also here that irony right now that if you go to a wedding, almost every wedding I've been to in the past year to maybe the last five weddings, uh, the officiant at the beginning says the bride and groom requests know that you would keep your phones inside mm. your pockets, that you would be here present for the ceremony, and I think because and partly people can rest assured because there's so many. Um, photographs that usually come out of these things, but it is interesting that when we really consider something to be that important, we tell people to stop photographing it. It's fascinating. And um, I and also if you're a person that likes live music, I always am, and I was I saw a Morrissey a couple years ago, and this was a kind of a religious experience for me. And there are a lot of people there filming the entire show while watching it, and you want to say, guys, put down your phones. And sometimes you have them say, you put down your phone, and we'll just be here for it, because no one ever watches those videos back. You listen to the music on Spotify, maybe one picture, I understand. But for the most part, the only reason I took a, a video was to sort of shove it in my friend's face who I knew had decided not to come. That was the really only reason I, I did it. And um, but A good reason. <laughs> there's, it's, just, it's this strange mix of fear and trying to control things and bring them down to manageable size while also... It, it's more of this disembodiment. It says like you're trying to inhabit a place by documenting it, but in fact, what you're doing is you're disinhabiting it. And we keep talking about how our our inability to be present where we are is causing all sorts of stri- suffering and strife. And um, photography, which is like a, it's almost it's this biblical, uh, you know, Roman seven type impulse where we're, we're what we're trying to do to inhabit a place ends up making it us less uh, in, inhabited. 
Like it's, you know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going too far with yeah, this. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, and it may be because I'm a, like the child of a photographer. I felt like this is a little bit more down on photography than I'm comfortable with. I don't know. And you guys saw that epic vacation photo from my parents that I sent you last <laughs> night. Cause I'm not the only one that needs to be traumatized. Um, my parents work really, really hard. Like they do this bizarre thing where my dad writes crop newsletters and there's three things that they have to check on every day. The markets, blah, 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 blah. They're like crazy, busy, self-employed people. They never get away. And they, they went on a cruise, which is a pretty new thing for them. They've recently done an AMC movie cruise. Um, no one is surprised these people raised me. And so this, but this was like a fun cruise. And my mom, so Josh, I'm sitting next to my husband last night. He goes, Hey, did you see this picture your mom sent? Or, or that your mom posted and he holds up this photograph and my parents are both in swimsuits. I mean, I haven't seen my dad's chest since like 93. I don't know. <laughs> and like, and, and I was like, Oh, she sent that to you. And he's like, no, she put it on the internet. And I was like, what? And they are like, they did like the mud bath at St. Lucia. And, um, I was like, I don't know. It was like a magical thing to see. Like it, like I've never seen anything at St. Lucia and been like, wow, like I feel tender for that place. And suddenly I see my parents who just work so hard, like, and they had the expression of newlyweds. Mm. And I was like, that, oh my that God. they definitely like, did. I feel so <laughs> lucky. I get to see this. You know what I mean? We're not going to talk about what RJ texted back, but I was like, <laughs> I, I felt the same way RJ said. I was like, some real, some real energy happening in this photo. Real energy in that photo. Let's just say you really feel like they were newlyweds. So I think that's all, that's all that needs that's to be That's it. Said. That's all yeah. you got to well, say. Well, what so. you're saying, though, I, what I'm hearing is that uh, photography is a way of sharing your joy with other people. And, yeah. and your joy almost multiplies when you share it. I think yeah. that there's, the, there's that, and then there's the inability to be present where people are, and the, sure. the pathological, like people sledding yesterday on the hill and like how much of it was actually sledding for the kids and how much was a photo ops and you kind of want that's such a dark question and it's such a good it's a it's a valuable question but it is like a question i ask myself all the time as someone who takes a lot of photographs of my kids doing stuff i'm like is this me is this them doing this because i want them to have a story or is this me getting a photograph of them doing this i mean the other place i asked myself that question and i guess so i can't relate to the travel piece as much but just in raising children, I realize how few pictures I have of my kids in the bath because you don't want to post pictures of your kids in the bath on Instagram. It's weird. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, but it's cute. But that means it, I don't have pictures of my kids in the bath. I yeah. mean, it's a weird, you know, so, I mean, I hate to even say that out loud. It makes me feel like a terrible person, and I am, but it's just, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing. These are it's a good discussions to have, for sure. What, what, RJ? Yeah. Well, it's also funny what you say about sharing joy because I do feel like, I don't know, a lot of the time when people post pictures of their children or their babies, they actually, I think, are posting them in joy. Like, look at my beautiful, cute baby. And then people are like, oh, my God, if I need to see another baby picture, you know, I'm going to scream. And so this effort to sh actually share joy and share love 
comes off even as kind of um, self-serving or self-aggrandizing. So it's it's a weird, but I don't think it has to do with photography so much as social media, mm. yeah. right? Yeah. That, that uh, show, you know, it used to be someone would come to your house and maybe you would show them pictures of a recent trip or your wedding album or something like that. And it was a more intimate experience where you could talk about it and it wasn't so... People, um, people dreaded those. Voyeuristic. Though. Wasn't and, that always like a... <laughs> Wasn't that always that was like, like a joke? The joke, the definition of like you you get captive to that wheel where people are just showing you slides. Yes. I think my aunt used to do slideshows. She actually used to get her pictures made into slides and do like the carousel thing in Mad Men. And part of it was cool and part of it was like, oh gosh, here we go again. Oh, you know. Right. But she was trying to share her joy. That's actually what she was trying to she wasn't trying to show off, I don't think. Well, what I, I also read it, it not so much as um it's it's that the the dynamics that we see in social media predate this because they're talking about the 1970s and everyone lined up at the Grand Canyon to take the exact same photo the exact same place when there's infinite number of expanses and what is that instinct that sort of lemming like instinct to all have to get the 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 picture that you've already seen before you went and it's the same thing as like why people seem to laugh louder at the parts of the movie that they've already seen in the trailer and I always wonder what what's going on there is is it like a, a recognition of being alive is it the act Actually, the funniest parts of the movie that are in the trailer, uh, and in context, they make more sense. I always feel that there's, there's, that's always been surprising to me. Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, what, where we could talk about that all day. But the, the thing that just blew my mind, as it, I knew it would, was the interview in the New Yorker with Esther Perel. We've talked about Esther Perel before. She's sort of, she, we named her as one of our favorite pagan priests in the Deja Vu issue of the magazine. She's a marriage therapist. Uh, she's from Belgium originally, a Jew, Jewish, uh, uh, Belgian Jew, uh, who mm -hmm. um, has had a very kind of a... Uh, interesting, interesting life, and has sort of taken on like, like a bit of a TED stage celebrity, minor celebrity. And but a lot of what she has to say in this um, interview, it's fascinating, uh, because when it comes to talking about modern romance and modern relationships and marriage and children and parents, she's got a lot of unexpected and wise things to say. So here's where we go. She talks at first about something we've spoken about numerous times about the difference in modern marriage from our ancestors. She says that we come from a model where relationships in our village lives, in our communal structures, were very clear. The community gave you your sense of identity. You knew who you were. You knew what was expected of you, and you knew how to behave. You had a lot of certainty, a lot of belonging, zero freedom. But now, with urbanization and modernization, she names a couple things, rules have been replaced by choices. So I think that's a big thing that is changing. What used to be defined by rules and duty and obligation now has to take place in conversation. And so everything is a freaking negotiation. You negotiate with your partner about what matters, where you want to live, if you want to have children, how many children you want to have, if this is the right time to have children. It's an absolute existential smorgasbord. But at the same time, it's very difficult to have to define everything ourselves. We are, uh, just, we are not just in pain for no reason, is what I'm trying to say. Then she goes on to talk about pain and suffering in her own life, and she talks about her experience growing up as, with her parents being survivors of the Holocaust. After a kind of experience like the Holocaust, sometimes there are people who are not dead, and sometimes there are people who are alive. That mm. is, some people survive, and some people thrive again. There were homes that were morbid. You just couldn't enjoy, because if you enjoy, if you experience pleasure, it means you're not vigilant. It means you're not on guard. It means you're not watching for the next danger. 
And then there were the other people who were really kind of uh, decided to take life as a vengeance and to live it at every moment. And I'm very lucky in that sense that I was in the household that veered to that extreme. But you couldn't be sad for two minutes because somebody would say, what's wrong? What's the problem? You could never have a problem that was worthy enough of being sad because who can compete with Auschwitz? And so, you know, it's not like this is such a piece of cake either. Um, I'll read a little bit more later, but what do you guys think of that, this, these, these, this interview? I thought it was amazing. And I've listened to Where Shall We Begin and learned a lot from it, hopefully. Um, I just think she understands people and she understands the way that relationships work. And she has a tremendous amount of experience, but also a real curiosity, which I, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, she does actually a lot more talking in her therapy sessions than I'm used to, but she's so doggone insightful and has so much experience. Like I, I loved, a couple of my favorite quotes were, um, I guess she was asked to uh, sort of consult for um, a TV show, and then there was a, the possibility of a podcast, and someone wanted a podcast that would be He Said, She Said, and Esther says, um, you know, that's not at all the way a couple works, actually. It's what, I, it's, what, it's what I say that makes you say the opposite of what you actually originally intended to say. That then makes me say the thing that I'm going to regret afterwards or that I've been meaning to tell you for all of God knows how long. And that just made me laugh out loud because it's so true, like the reactivity. You know, it's not like two reasonable people sit down and have sort of a, an honest, you know, discussion. It, it just, there's so much reaction. Whatever your spouse or your partner says um, colors what you're going to say and, and, you know, creates division and anger. And, and then the way that she wraps it up was kind of amazing as well. I think that the definition of love today, quote, you are my everything, unquote, where you really see it, this complete exaltation is in wedding vows. Have you ever noticed? I mean, it's, I will wipe every tear that streams down your face before you even notice it's going down. Then she says, I think a realistic vow is, quote, I will F up on a regular basis and on occasion, I'll admit it. (laughs) You know, she's just much more cynical and realistic about relationships, but also wants people to be in honest, helpful relationships. And so I think that level of cynicism can be a little bit off-putting to people that are looking for kind of the, you know, the perfect thing, but can be helpful and grounding as well. Um, And the last thing I'll say is obviously she's not coming from a faith context. And I remember when I'd been married for a few years, you know, it was always important for me to marry someone who shared my quote-unquote faith tradition, who who was a Christian. And I thought that that was about kind of agreeing about the, the... I don't know, the basis on which we would build a life together. But then I actually realized that the most helpful thing about that was recognizing that we weren't in it alone um, and that uh, I didn't have to change my spouse and I didn't have to change myself, but that I could sort of count on God to do his work in us and sort of let go of the need to control and affect a little bit. Um, and I would say that fits in well with, you know, what Esther Prell is doing, because what she really is trying to do is, is get people to listen to one another. And it's incredibly difficult to listen and empathize with one another when you're angry and you're, you're wounded. Um, so I, I, I love Esther Prell. Sarah. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. Um, we listen to these a lot. Josh and I do. She does two things, uh, that I find very helpful she points to people suffering in a really clear way. And, you know, I mean, several of uh, her episodes are about people who there, there's been indiscretion. Someone's cheated on someone else. And 
she never quite comes at it the way that you think she's going to. Um, so she points to people suffering. But the other thing that she does that I find rather magical is that she makes people realize that sometimes things are funny and um, people laugh and she laughs and she has a kind of like a cutting humor that is um, really generous at moments that people need it. And I think those two things are pretty fundamental in marriage. I mean, I, mm. you know, it's so funny when you get married, you, you do, you have, RJ, you're totally right. You have this like checklist. I mean, I definitely had, you know, this is what this person has to be like. And then you enter into it and it almost doesn't matter what you do or do not have in common or how they have met your list at all. It matters that they're willing to let you suffer um, and to suffer in front of you. And it matters that like you can like laugh. I don't know. I just find those two things to be like, the survive. I mean, maybe those are just unique to the condon marriage, but I feel like those are like our two, like complete survival techniques. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's so funny to me. I feel like marriage, twelve years in, shouldn't. I I feel like marriage two years in shouldn't even be called marriage. Do you know what I mean? And I know that marriage twelve years in compared to marriage twenty two years in, which is more like where. Um, RJ and Jamie are, it's not, I just not even the same thing. You know what I mean? I think one of the biggest things I've learned from Pearl, and this is just me, I don't think this is a universal thing, but I think one thing she tries to bring her people to recognize is that so much of conflict devolves into kind of a miscommunication and a fighting about kind of what quote unquote actually happened and trying mm -hmm. to come to a shared narrative. But sometimes you can't reach a shared narrative. But at the end of the day, what matters is not actually what happened and who started the fight and who reacted and the words that were said, but how each partner feels about what happened. And then the other person's ability to enter into that pain and empathize mm -hmm. um, with that person and for, the, for each party who was injured to feel felt and heard in the midst of their um, suffering. And I think that's a helpful insight because oftentimes you're not going to agree about who started the fight or exactly what happened. But if you can have compassion on one another in the midst of your pain and take each other seriously and listen and expect the best of the other person, that just goes a tremendous way in healing uh, wounds and creating intimacy, mm -hmm. which is, you know, at the end of the day, what you what you want. I, st I will say I remain, I remain pretty idealistic about marriage, even 19 years. in. I love, 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 love my wife. And I know that she says that, what does she say? Love is not a permanent state. Like it fluctuates. She says, uh, like I love this. She says, it's not a permanent state of enthusiasm. Uh, we think it's disappeared and suddenly it shows up again. Um, it's an active engagement with all kinds of feeling, positive and primitive ones and loathsome ones. So one of the things she says in there is she says that like couples therapy is usually people are there because they're stuck in some way and they mm. keep coming at the same things in the same ways. And she feels like couples therapy is actually sort of like a, a crust. You're just trying to loosen the crust on the relationship, the stuckness where they need to be able to um, see each other in a slightly different light. Like they, uh, she needs to, the 
she needs to create the space for the woman to be able to to really address her husband in some way, and the husband to address his uh, wife in other ways, in ways that allow them not just to say what they're saying, but for the other person to hear them, to to yeah. interact with a different part of that person, and you just see a little bit of movement. It was the closest I sent found to like a God type connection here, outside of the just the sort of overall grace that she kind of narrates here. But that you, if you can, as a therapist, your job is to help um, kind of unstick a, just a little bit so that the, then God does all this other stuff once people can sort of see each other from a different vantage point. And maybe that's me interpolating a little bit, but that's one of the reasons I, uh, I, I love what she, her, her way of looking at it is not that she's trying them to get them to say certain things or come to certain insights, but to see each other from slightly different angles or to interact with a slightly different part of the other person, which she knows will loosen the log jam and which is akin to the spirit flowing. And, you know, you're seeing someone in a different context. And I remember whenever, yes. whenever we travel, that's one of the great things. I mean, whether or not we take mm-hmm. pictures is a different story, but we, uh, we, we interact. <laughs> We sort of see a different side of one another and, mm-hmm. and our children too, and it's this really enriching experience. But speaking of family life, I thought we, we would end by talking about Christmas and in fact talking a little bit about what uh, our own Carrie Willard wrote at your behest, I believe, Sarah. Because I, but I love this story yes. she tells. She's written before about how her family almost didn't quote unquote do Santa, <clears throat> and you know this is a very hot topic among. Uh, uh, young parents, especially maybe it's especially Christian, especially Christian parents. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, why would I Christians <clears throat> and hyper intellectuals are the people I've met. <laughs> Uber Christians and hyper intellectuals are the ones who don't do Santa Claus. Why would I lie to my children, Sarah? Uh, she says through the years, we you lie all the time to your children. <laughs> Yeah, whether why not do it? Whether or not you acknowledge it, do it in you've the lied to your kids like four times today. Do it in the service of a little bit of uh, whimsy and magic instead of just self-serving, uh, yeah, getting them exactly. to shut up, shut up. You're gonna miss the bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're not gonna miss the bus. She wrote. Over the years, we found ways to make Santa more meaningful. We don't do the naughty nice paradigm. Not that we don't reward good behavior and remove privileges for less than stellar behavior, but it's not part of our Christmas narrative. And Santa and God. <clears throat> aren't exactly linked, but we're not going to have Santa creeping around and practicing the very opposite of our family's faith either. This has evolved naturally over the years without a ton of serious reflection on our parts, but generally the spirit has moved us to find ways to make Christmas magical without sacrificing our self-imposed high-mindedness. When our eldest son asked about the elf on the shelf, we improvised quickly and deputized three wise men from a woolen nativity scene to travel through our house and look for the star of Bethlehem. I love that. And last year, uh, when the children wanted Gatorade and gum for Christmas, it was Santa who delivered them. Our youngest was dying for a variety of Gatorade flavors to try. I... Carrie wanted nothing less than that. Gatorade is the kind of thing at our house that gets sipped for a few minutes, then left to make a table sticky, only to get drained and recycled half a day later. Gum falls in the same category. I don't know any mom who wants more gum in her life. (laughs) I love that line. Neither of these things are inherently harmful, but they're not on my shopping list. So imagine there, my boy's surprise, when Santa delivered a Costco-sized flat of Gatorade last year in every flavor imaginable. The stockings were filled with a dozen packages of pink bubblegum-flavored chewing gum. Nasty. My children know that no parent would engage in such indulgent display of grace and generosity. The thing I love about children is that sometimes their wishes are so ridiculously simple and they can be so easy to please. Gum and Gatorade set the big guy back maybe $20 last year, but they brought so much joy to our Christmas morning. 
This year, I've heard a rumor that noise, putty, and camouflage face paint will make an appearance in the stockings. There's nothing about camo or face paint that appeals to me either, but I have to admit I can't wait to see the reaction it brings. Gum and Gatorade may not seem like they have anything to do with the Christ child, but they represent the kind of outrageous generosity that Christmas brings to our lives and the way that only God can bring us the objects of our heart's desire. When my sister dismissed herself from our family life a few years ago, Carrie's written about this and spoken about it, so we can talk about it here. Um, I didn't know I needed more older sisters in my life. Everywhere we've lived, though, God has brought wise women into my life who happen to be exactly her age. This kind of unexpected gift is exactly the glimpse of heaven's grace that I want my children to experience. Even though the world of parenting is not short on advice, it can feel like we are raising our children in a world that is short on magic. This world is hard enough and a little dry, and so our magic can feel like an almost necessary breath of fresh air and a refreshing sip of water during this dark season. I want to remind our children of the beautiful words in the liturgy of the church that we are, quote, heirs through hope of God's everlasting kingdom. And if hope looks like Gatorade and camo face paint, then sign me up. I, mean, I, got, I love I got this piece. I think it's such I know. a beautiful picture. Gatorade and gum and face paint and all these unnecessary things that only, the only explanation could be Santa. Would be Santa Claus. The ma- that there's that magic. She- she posted, uh, she she put something up on social media last year, like f- a few days before Christmas. She's like, she's like, oh my gosh, Amazon will deliver anything. And it was like this picture of just like so much Gatorade. And I have to say like this year, I've thought differently about what I give my kids from Santa Claus because um, it is an opportunity to like give them crazy stuff you wouldn't want them to have. Like, and the putty thing, putty is a big, I'm not going to use an expletive, a big deal in our house because we have carpet that is old enough to vote because we live in a rectory and sometimes (laughs) you have that. Um, And it's a white, which was not kid friendly, whoever decided to put that in 20 years ago. And um, so I already have like putty stains in it and I have banned putty from our house like permanently, but I'm totally thinking that Santa Claus might put some putty in people's stockings this year and I'll just be like, what? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I'm like pumped for this. So I'm going to make Carrie come over and help me clean the carpet. (laughs) 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 Oh, I just, it it, it totally got me because Gatorade and gum are two superfluous things. I mean, when they come to, they shouldn't want them, uh, but the the definition of of something the kids, uh, you know, they don't have any uh, moral justification, shall we say, or any kind of justification. They just want them. They just want them and they want them a lot. And to give those things, even though you know they're, they're, you know, only there for this sort of uh, superabundance or overflowing and unnecessary joy. I just love that idea because, mm-hmm. of course, we think of Christmas. I, I think the gift-giving um, tradition is what's so in line with the gospel. The, the naughty, nice stuff mm-hmm. isn't because those aren't gifts. Those are wages. But right. the, 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 the gift-giving, the, the fact that God gives us a gift that we wouldn't even want. It's like someone says, surprise, I, I adopted a child. Like, it's... Uh, you know, isn't that what it's, but it's such a great way to like brazenly tell your children about the gospel. It really, it like, cause our son asked me the other day, 
if it would if he could get in trouble and not get things from Santa Claus. And I was like, oh, no, Santa doesn't work like that in our house. Like, he's just like, God, he just gives us things we don't deserve. Like, it came right. My husband was like, you must have planned that in your head. And I was like, I think about it a lot. <laughs> but I will say that yesterday I had the the I had our daughter, who's the younger one. She's four in the car. And so she's she and she's at the church school. So she's hearing all kinds of like Christmas songs constantly right now. And she's like thinking this was like such a like virtuous thing to do. She's like, hey, mama, can we sing um, Santa Claus is coming to town? But instead of saying Santa, can we say Jesus? And I was like, sure, not thinking. And then I'm like, you better watch <laughs> out. I'm like, oh, no, Jesus we cannot funny. sing. This. <laughs> <sighs> RJ, where are you with all this? We're in a weird place because we have two teenagers yeah. who, you know, have a certain perspective on Santa Claus. And then we have a two-year-old who has no idea what the heck is going on. And so it's bizarre. And I I long for the days that our kids would have been super psyched to get Gatorade and bubblegum. But of course, you know, we have one teenage um, son who never asks for anything and can't even uh, – struggles to think about what he might possibly want – and then another one who was like, you know, a list 10 pages long, most of which is just uh, video games and more and more screens. Although he stopped playing Fortnite recently. He's moved on to Madden. So we're on a different... Sanctification. Uh, different... <laughs> exactly. It's just Hashtag. Another rung on the, another rung on the ladder. Um, I love to give them... I love to give them gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh but it also, you know, they're like in finals week next week. In some ways, it feels like Christmas is not going to start until they're finally out of school and they've taken their midterm exams and we're going to have like a week to kind of blow it out. Um, and and for me personally, I don't know. Christmas doesn't actually feel like it's begun until I get home from the midnight service at like 1230 or 1 o'clock. And usually then I'm up until about 4 wrapping presents. And I like to do a um, kind of a scavenger hunt for the big present where I leave clues around the house. And that's the most fun part for me where the, my teenage boys are running around the house for 20 minutes, going from clue to clue to clue, trying to find kind of their big Christmas gift. Um, so I look forward to that. And then um, the day after Christmas is always really nice. That was amazing last year. The house was clean and the boys were playing with their new things. And my wife and I just watched a ridiculous romantic comedies you know like what, what what's that one with jack black and um the the, the holiday the engagement the holiday yes which is ridiculous and then watched pride and prejudice and the notebook like back to back to back and just laid on yeah laid on the couch all day and felt did not feel the least bit guilty or worthless you know because it's like we done it it had happened mm-hmm. um but that feels like christmas to me you know it's every every single year it's this mixture of anticipation and dread. Mm. And I always feel a little bit guilty for the dread part. And then I think again about Mary on donkey back, pregnant, no room at the inn, laying the baby in a manger, like what is going on? Um, and the anticipation and dread that the, the they must have been experiencing. And then, you know, if you've had a child, you know what that's like, like the craziness mm. of the labor experience. And then once it happens everything gets kind of quiet, you know, and newborn babies um, sleep, you know, they've got a lot of sleeping to do because they've been through a lot, like through a trauma. And so does a mom. And that's this, the sweetness is like right afterwards. But until that moment, it's anticipation and dread. And so um, I don't know. That's what I'm looking forward to this year. And, but I'm not quite there yet. I feel like a few more days and I'll kind of dive in 
you know, feet first. I think we we tend to uh, make Christmas um, not just about both dread and anticipation. I think we just naturally, instinctually, we do what what Neil did, what all the songs do. We kind of put the conditions back in, and we we make it. We we take the only love we know is the humankind, which is the like the stuff that Esther talks about. And it was funny. I thought to me in the last paragraph of her. Uh, interview where she says that the, the, this love that I will dry every every tear from your eye before it even falls down, like that's actually the love of God that we see in that's in, true. in yeah. Christmas, which shoulders all of the dread uh, and all of the anticipation, and also is that which is sort of given freely, um, but not like we give. And so I, I don't know. There's a lot of tremendous hope for me at Christmas time, with the ones that I love, imperfectly celebrating the advent, as it were, of the love that is not imperfect, that is perfect, and is sort of made perfect in this strange uh, feeding trough type, you know, garage, uh, almost gas station-like scenario. So I don't. I. I our Christmas, we have, we we too have one of these kids. One kid whose presence is everything, and one kid who is much more about experiences and kind of doesn't care. So, um, how we deal with that? But I know that the Santa thing is big for us in terms of illustrating the uh, the. Uh, there's more going on than what you see, and in mm. fact, not everything that you don't see that's going on is bad. And uh, God is actually here with the Gatorade and the gum. Um, not just at Christmas, but I think every day in certain ways. Anyway, maybe that's trite, but that's my that's that's my Christmas hope. Yeah, I mean, for me this season, especially, and I um, I'm mentioning her at every turn. She's actually giving me a little money on the side. Uh, Fleming Rutledge's book on <laughs> Advent. Just kidding. She's not giving me any money. I'm just obsessed with her book. Um, is feels. I don't know. I, I I always hate to say this because like it's just such a presumptuous sort of egotistical to our era thing to say. But things feel really hard right now. The news cycle feels really hard right now and really bleak and um, hopeless. And I mean, we just had this like video of three, the three people who are like leading our country, like screaming at each other, you know. And when she points us towards Jesus coming back, I can find hope there. I can find rest there. Um, I can know that even though there are all these people in the world who are suffering enormously in ways I cannot imagine that God has um, consolation for them as well as for me. And this is a season that I'm, I felt that more profoundly this Advent than I've ever felt it before. And I'm convinced it's because of Fleming's book, but, um, yeah, that has, it's kind of chilled me out a little bit this season. It's interesting. Um, you know, I'll be honest when on, on the note of marriage, when my husband called me and he's like, I've got some really bad news about Santa Claus. Um, Neil saw everything. I was like, I don't know. I, I feel like I would have been much angrier with him in any other Christmas season. But this season I was like, okay, you know what I mean? There's just, I don't know. Something's just kind of shifted. And, um, and I have, I don't, I don't exactly know why. And next Advent I could be back to feeling crazy, but 
this Advent has felt, um, there's been a lot of consolation in it for me because I know that Jesus will come back and everything will be okay. So I can put my faith in that. And in the meantime, we have the sweet glimpses of grace that I am totally with you, David, our Gatorade and bubblegum that we get to give to little boys who think that that is the craziest thing for Santa Claus to leave them, um, which is exactly how I feel about the gospel. Mm. So, I think that's a perfect note to end on. What do you say? Um, we will be... Um, Thank you, both of you, for all of the fun we've had this year doing revving this engine back up. Uh, it's a privilege and an honor. It's been a great gift to me, frankly. Um, uh, so I sort of often feel like I'd, I'd do it if no one were listening. And uh, wanted to say I don't think we'll, we probably won't get together next two weeks. So uh, mm-hmm. we will see people. Uh, we will hear you. We will talk to you. You will hear from us again in the new year, but we hope you have a blessed, blessed, uh, and just warm, joyful Christmas uh, and we uh, and a wonderful new year and get some rest and uh, see you soon. Bye. Thanks, Dave. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise